Okay, uh, welcome everyone. Uh, I'm delighted uh, to chair uh, tonight's uh, talk. Uh, this is the first of a uh, number of seminars in our Latin American series, and uh, I hope you'll be able to see some of the later ones. But uh, this evening we have uh, Professor Jason McGraw of the University, uh, Indiana University. Uh, Jason is here in London for uh, six months, which is fantastic, and uh, hopefully he'll come back to some of our other uh, events. Um, he uh, has a PhD from the University of uh, Chicago and has uh, been working, I think, for the uh, last few years on a project that has resulted in this uh, book, which was published uh, recently by the University of California. Sorry, University of North Carolina Press, the work of recognition, Caribbean Colombia, and the post-emancipation struggle for citizenship. So, um, uh, but uh, this evening, the, the title of his talk is "Recognition as the Social Practice of Citizenship in Post-Emancipation Colombia." So, well, thank you so much, Dr. Duino, for giving me this opportunity. Um, my first talk in England, so I'm very excited. Um, so my my talk today is an attempt, uh, an attempted distillation of a main idea that animates my book. Um, I came at my book topic uh, about the consequences of slave emancipation in Colombia, uh, not from the perspective of Latin American history or Latin American studies. I came at the topic from the perspective of Caribbean history and the Atlantic world. That's where my training is, uh, and that's kind of where my mental frameworks uh, sometimes operate. Um, uh, and for me, the Atlantic world perspective opened up a new way to think about the abolition of slavery in Colombia in the early 1850s. Uh, instead of um, abolition being the culmination of a story, um, and you often see this in uh, histories on Spanish-American mainland republics from, from Mexico to Argentina, that um, that uh, there will be uh, narratives about uh, the late colonial decay of slavery, the wars of independence that created chaos that allowed uh, the systems of slavery to, to decay further, and then the mid-century uh, legal abolitions that end the story. Uh, to me, that was unsatisfying, and so I thought about um, uh, what if we take the liberation of slaves as the beginning of the story, uh, which is not a common... Uh, narrative approach um, for the Spanish republics. Uh, and so I was interested in reframing Colombian historical development after that moment uh, as one defined by slave emancipation. And by thinking about Colombia as a post-emancipation society, new dynamics came into view. The major dynamics that I address in the book uh, are two opposing movements. Uh, and these two opposing, opposing movements brought about the destruction of slavery. Uh, these movements uh, would also go on to frame debates around citizenship after the destruction of slavery uh, in the decades that followed uh, slave emancipation in 1852. So the first movement that I look at is the movement of uh, people of African descent, enslaved persons, and also free persons of color uh, in their effort to destroy slavery. Uh, for Colombia and for other um, republics, self-liberation was a common path and sometimes the most common path 
to freedom. Uh, in Colombia through flight to the backlands of the Caribbean coast and the Pacific coast and some other regions. Slaves and free people of color often work together to achieve marinage or cimarronaje. This freedom movement hollowed out institutionalized slavery so that by the middle of the 19th century, the political stakes uh, had been reduced almost to nil for the achieving legal emancipation. The country that became Colombia in, uh, it was uh, New Granada at the time, Nueva Granada, uh, had 17,000 souls in legalized bondage on the first day of 1852. On that day, those remaining legally enslaved persons gained their freedom. At that moment, they made up less than 1% of the national population. Colombia was a society with slaves. The term, of course, to distinguish uh, it from societies that were slave societies, uh, where slavery defined the social, cultural, economic, political uh, life of the country, such as San Domingue, Haiti, Jamaica, Cuba, Brazil, in the United States. So that's the first movement I look at in the book. The second movement is uh, around ending slavery was the growing national consensus uh, for abolition across the political spectrum in, in Colombian society. Liberals, moderates, many conservatives uh, came to agree on abolition by about 1850. Students, lawyers, artisans, even some priests united in support of the call to destroy slavery. More profoundly, individuals and groups petitioned for an end to slavery as a demonstration of their rights and standing in the republic. The non-black Colombian majority staked their own demands for a role in public life through their appeals to end bondage for the enslaved minority. So it was both of these movements, the clandestine movement of slaves and the very public movement of citizens that brought about final slave emancipation in 1852. And it was both of these movements uh, together that would bring about a new sense of citizenship. Marinage and flight from slavery were the preconditions for the abolitionist consensus. And the abolitionist consensus was the precondition for the creation of a universal manhood suffrage and civil equality between adult males. These political ideals were achieved by legal writ in the immediate wake of slave emancipation. It was the prospect for universal freedom that compelled Colombians to ask questions about what citizens would look like, how they should act, and where they belonged. The citizenship ideal rendered it unavoidable that Colombians would use slave emancipation to reflect on what kind of society and politics were desirable or even possible. And in this, I would put my work into uh, the, the growing literature on post-emancipation societies in the Americas, um, works by Rebecca Scott uh, and, and many others uh, that I would like to dialogue with, um, and I hope my book um, achieves that. What quickly became clear um, is that these two movements, the freedom struggles of African-descended people and the universalizing national consensus, these were two movements that had generated new possibilities for civic engagement and new, a new democratic ethos. These quickly gave way, though, to disagreement and uncertainty, uncertainties uh, over the meaning of rights, equality, and freedom. Grounding citizenship in slave emancipation uncovered a profound lack of agreement over the meanings of democratic ideals and values. So in the book, I look at several contests in which Colombians 
use slave emancipation as a legal precedent and a guiding spirit uh, for democratic citizenship. Lawmakers and, and political groups linked a host of other uh, democratic reforms to slave emancipation. During the 1850s in Colombia, the abolition of educational standards, the abolition of, of, the, abolition of the, the universities, in fact, the eradication of titles of honors and address, the extinction of economic monopolies, of, uh, um, all happened in the name of human emancipation. New marriage laws, including equal, equal rights to divorce and divorce on demand, for, for a brief moment, full rights for children born outside of formal marriage, manhood suffrage without qualification, the disestablishment of the Catholic Church, and changes in school curricula were all grounded in the fact of slave emancipation. In the push for social change through the law, the extinction of slavery was the touchstone, the touchstone for reform. The tying of so many liberal democratic reforms to the destruction of slavery was a sign of how Colombians had made slave emancipation meaningful to all citizens. Meaningful, but highly contested. Uh, changes in the law and in constitutions were important, but uh, they were only part of the story I tell. The universalizing impulse of emancipation shaped much of public life in the generation after 1850. And I take my story actually uh, into the early 20th century, um, and I, I frame it as two different periods, the, the liberal period of 1850 to about uh, the middle uh, 1880s, and then uh, the reactionary period from the 1880s to uh, the early uh, 20th century. Uh, this, uh, uh, this universalizing impulse included social interactions between citizens. So it wasn't just the law as a top-down framework. It was also uh, interactions uh, on the ground. And these were an important way for illiterate citizens to give meaning to their citizenship. These interactions took place through civic, civic ritual, through elections, wartime mobilizations, religious festivity, marketplace activity, and through work. In other words, freeing slaves, uh, freeing Columbia's few remaining slaves in 1852, far from being inconsequential, allowed numerous political movements and reform projects to expand the boundaries of citizenship in the name of emancipation. Nevertheless, constitutional precepts took second place to public interactions over rights and standing in this pre-industrial and pre-literate society. A society yet, at the same time, that was highly politicized. Few of these interactions could be said to be innovations of the post-emancipation period. Many had been witnessed long before the last slaves won their freedom. Yet emancipation changed the conditions under which these everyday forms of interaction translated into new practices of public validation for plebeian citizens. Through their actions and interactions, Colombians of African descent helped fashion a new political culture that for some time served as the basis for all citizenship. Uh, and I want to say more about this in, in a moment, about the, the social interactions. Uh, the problem with the universalizing embrace of emancipation is that it made it all but impossible for Colombians of African descent to assert claims on their own behalf based on their role in destroying slavery. Uh, the newly enfranchised continued to engage in the kinds of activities that had undermined slavery through flight, flight from coercion, uh, rejection of authority they deemed illegitimate. These practices continued. Other citizens, however, 
in particular the overeducated, came to regard these behaviors as deficiencies that precluded the possibility of full and equal citizenship. Uh, in other moments, when people of color and their allies presume to defend the legacy, the legacy of emancipation, their opponents reckon these actions as violations of the legacy itself. So these competing worldviews, one universal and embodied by all, and the other rooted in specific experiences of freedom, constituted a major contest over citizenship in Colombia. And it was a struggle that continued on long after the abolitionist impulse had faded. This contest between a universalizing sense of rights and the particular freedom struggles of African-descended peoples defined the possibilities for citizenship. Some older dis distinctions were legally abolished, and an egalitarian masculine citizenship was installed in their place. But I root my stories, I've mentioned, in uh, the everyday experience of popular politics and of work to get at what citizenship really looked like. So I use this concept of recognition to think about citizenship as an everyday practice or everyday social interactions between citizens and public. Recognition was a give and take. Citizens demanded, to, uh, demanded that others recognize their rights and standing. And at the same time, citizens demanded the right to recognize the rights and the standing of others. So recognition was a recursive uh, practice. In other words, it was not just the right to have rights. It was also the right to acknowledge and uh, uh, recognize the, uh, sorry, the right to acknowledge the rights of others. One's own recognition was bound up in the ability to recognize others. People demanded citizen dignity and they demanded uh, to be able to grant citizens uh, citizen dignity to others. These social interactions in public were productive of citizenship, even when interactions took place between citizens of different social positions, economic means, literacy status, and backgrounds. Differences between citizens were inevitable. Lack of agreement over universal or particular understandings of rights created a great deal of social friction. And I argue in the book that it was these moments of friction that we can see citizenship being created and often destroyed. So in trying to make sense of what citizenship looked like on the ground or citizenship as part of the everyday, uh, I attempted to recuperate Charles Taylor's concept of recognition and to redeploy it uh, to reflect on citizenship as a social practice. Colombians engaged in the public realm in part by demanding recognition of, as citizens and, as I mentioned, by demanding the right to recognize others as citizens. So I used Taylor's concept uh, first by removing his reduction of recognition to a process reliant on issues of identity and cultural authenticity. So I'm not trying to reconstruct social or cultural identities. That's not really um, a fruitful uh, avenue to pursue, especially for the 19th century for non-literate populations. Uh, and I'm not trying to move forward an argument that people's identities helped to explain their motivations. Uh, and I've also left behind Taylor's multiculturalism to the extent that's not germane to the 19th century uh, Latin American context. What is still fruitful about Taylor is his dialectical framing of citizenship as a universal ideal that generates particularist demands 
that appear in contradiction to the universalist claims. For Taylor, the universal sense of rights come first, and then the particular demands come later, uh, and they are uh, they negate each other. Um, I think we could say the 19th century Latin America might be a, a locus classicus for elite invocations of a utopian universalism that left little room for cultural difference in their midst. Instead of how people conceived of themselves and what motivated their actions, I look at how they acted and inter interacted in public. Public life was the context for the enactment of citizenship. Social interactions in public were the sinews of citizenship. Colombians after slavery expressed and demanded recognition as part of the everyday practice of their citizenship. Recognition then were the public habits through which individuals demanded that others acknowledge their rights, standing, and belonging as citizens. These demands were continual. Individuals and groups took to the streets, the plazas, the work sites, marketplace, uh, to interact with others. And through these public interactions, they asserted the right to be recognized as citizens, or what Taylor calls citizen dignity. Yet recognition as social practice was not unidirectional. And this is where I move past Taylor's formulation of recognition, which really bears the markings of a kind of soft interpolation. Uh, and here, this is where my social history kicks in. Uh, the social interaction among citizens uh, that I talk about uh, is about citizens who insisted not only uh, on the ability to recognize, the, the ability of others to recognize their rights, but their ability to recognize others as having rights and standing. So I'm kind of repeating myself here. These moments, these practices happen at times of election uh, when plebeian citizens assume the authority to regulate the process of voting, even over whom could vote. Sometimes uh, men who were quasi non-enfranchised, um, youths, uh, non-literate youths, uh, got to decide who could vote. And so these are moments where I um, I want to highlight how uh, recognition flowed in both directions. And uh, sometimes non-enfranchised persons assume the authority over the franchise. Citizens formed armed militias, military units, and other collectivities they insist, where they insisted on the right to choose their leaders or to watch over others in public. And as Catholic parishioners, they insisted, or they assumed the authority to grant authority to church leaders and to regulate the spiritual resources of the church. So my book details many of these social practices over several decades in the late 19th century. As a fundamental capacity of citizenship, Colombians continually insisted on being acknowledged as citizens with rights and dignity, as well as acknowledging others. What the historical record for Colombia tells us is that uh, this recognition was not the telos. It was not the end point. Recognition was not the full instantiation of uh, citizenship. It wasn't fixed or static. And recognition was not part of a dialectic in which something called misrecognition served as the, its antithesis. Instead, recognition was productive of the capacity to act within the constraints of citizenship. You know, I work on citizenship, and I can't even say the word. Um, so points points against me. So recognition, far from being the telos, 
was a point of departure for further public action. The recognition of citizenship emboldened many citizens to make further claims to rights, standing, belonging. And part of their claims to rights and standing entailed the right and standing to grant that to others. So recognition was not the fulfillment of, of status. Recognition was the capacity to act and to interact with others in the context of citizenship. This capacity uh, to act in public bound citizens together. Recognition was a form of reciprocity, a give and take, a relationship. It was a relationship that necessarily had to be continually renewed. And 19th century Columbia gave uh, many opportunities to renew it through election days that fell on uh, at multiple times during the year, uh, for instance, or multiple civil wars that allowed um, citizens to mobilize. Aspects of one, one's own rights and standing were bound up in and bound up with the rights and standing of others. So here's where the Hegelian sense of recognition really becomes clear. Citizens considered part of their citizenship to be entitled to recognize the citizenship of others. And if they were denied that capacity to grant recognition to others, then where was their own sense of rights? What was their own standing? Those came into, into um, doubt or even under threat. If one could not hail others as citizens, then what was left of one's own standing? What was left for them to do in public? What were social interactions for? How could illiterate citizens fashion relations with intermediaries of law and gain that public voice? So that baseline equality of citizen dignity, and that's a phrase from Taylor, could easily disappear under conditions where their own capacity to recognize others was denied. In fact, everyday, everyday denial and disavowal of citizenship were a constant feature of popular practice in 19th century politics. Assuming the capacity of recognition was often, often led to misrecognition. Citizens interacted in public in ways that could and did deny the rights and standing of others. Indignities were often carried out in the name of exercising citizenship. And obviously this was not limited to Columbia or to the 19th century. At this point, I should be more explicit about what uh, any of this has to do with slave emancipation. Obviously, some of these social practices and public habits predated the final abolition of slavery, slavery in 1852. What slave emancipation changed were the conditions under which social practices translated into new forms of public validation or acknowledgement of citizens. Colombians looked upon emancipation as not only the end of slavery, but also as the conversion of slaves into citizens and as the final demolition of colonial era social distinctions. Many Colombians understood that the May 1851 final emancipation law served as the embodiment and guiding spirit of a public life free from racial discrimination. As the guiding spirit of a democratic citizenship, emancipation paved the way for civil equality among adult men. The law wiped away legal barriers to public life that had once uh, validated exclusions based on color and other status markers. Emancipation and civil equality laid the groundwork 
for universal manhood suffrage enacted a year after the remaining slaves gained their freedom. With emancipation, civil equality, and universal manhood suffrage, uh, with, with universal manhood suffrage in place, distinctions of literacy and property status no longer carried any legal weight. And here I'm going to repeat myself again. Changes in the law, however, were only half of it. Emancipation's legal sanction of a homogeneous masculine citizenship was insufficient without its civic enactment. At the height of emancipation, lettered and propertied individuals began consorting in overt ways with plebeian citizens. Diverse publics became contexts for enacting this egalitarian sensibility. The law could demolish status distinctions, but horizontal relations could only take shape when citizens converged in public to give them weight and content. Colombians of African descent helped fashion a new political culture that for some time served as the basis for all citizenship. Uh, now, even this practice may have taken place um, at times before final emancipation. But under post-emancipation conditions, where all legal barriers to public life for adult men had been removed, this kind of reciprocity of recognizing others and, and demanding, right to, demanding one's own rights and the demanding the right to recognize others' rights, uh, slave emancipation allowed that practice to flourish. But my story is not just one of people trying to make good on the law by engaging in civic ritual, but that's part of the story. Uh, that was something that happened, and I have numerous examples of that. Yet this is also a story of citizens who imparted new meanings on the law. That is, they pushed beyond the letter of the law in ways not anticipated by the creators of those utopian, universalizing legal codes. So in the book, I give numerous examples of, of reciprocity and mutual recognition. And here I just want to give one example of how changes in the national law uh, rearrange the possibilities of social interactions between citizens and how those interactions produce new forms of recognition beyond the letter of the law. As Charles Taylor notes in his discussion of recognition, the establishment of a universalizing framework of citizen dignity created the conditions for the, the emergence of particularistic claims based on difference. My own research revealed a similar inherent contradiction between universalist egalitarian frame, uh, framework for citizenship and the assertion of localistic or particularist claims within it. Yet my own work is con concerned much more than Taylor's with this contradiction between the universal and the particular as one created by citizens themselves through active engagement in public. So my example I want to give is about the rise of popular juries in Colombia after 1851. The same set of emancipation era democratic reforms that extended civil and political rights, equality to all men, also created trial by jury for most court cases. Even illiterate and propertyless men could serve on juries. Plebeian Colombians embraced service on juries less as an obligation or a duty than as a fundamental right. It appeared that jury duty was seen as a visible performance of one's citizenship status in public. Based on what took place after, uh, after jury trials began in Colombia, we cannot reduce jury service 
uh, to a sense of an obligation of citizenship. Male citizens embrace jury, jury service as a right, perhaps as an entitlement. As a right or entitlement, propertyless and illiterate men appropriated civil equality to renounce criminal sentencing for crimes against property and authority. Uh, and this begins on the Caribbean coast, which is the main uh, context I look at. Uh, in the run-up to slave emancipation, and then it's full-blown by 1853 when the Constitution, which is the post-emancipation Constitution, uh, creates trial by juries for all uh, court cases. But it, be it begins on the Caribbean coast a few years before. In taking up duties as juries, uh, men, most of them illiterate, propertyless, began to oppose the harsh penalties of the legal codes and penal system. As one observer at the time remarked, the juries, quote, resisted the cruelty and disproportion of the law with an almost absolute leniency, rebuffing any criminal sentencing that, that included the death penalty, 10 years imprisonment, or 16 years forced labor. Jurors showed mercy because they lacked confidence in criminal statutes and because, according to another observer in 1852, convicts were incarcerated in insalubrious prisons that represented a hateful social power redolent of slavery. Out of a sense of justice, popular juries acquitted most defendants, in particular those who had already served time in prison. In submitting acquittals for most plebeian men accused of property crimes, Juries appeared to see their, these actions as the fulfillment of the ideals embodied in slave emancipation. Juries became uh, an organized venue for the recognition of active ma uh, masculine citizenship. Men served in this public setting that compelled more literate, educated, and propertied men to respect their rights and standing. Recognition flowed not only toward the men on, this, on the juries, but also clearly in the other direction as well. Plebeian men assumed authority over the law. They practiced a form of what is called in the United States jury nullification. They pushed beyond the letter of the law by denying the authority of the law in most criminal cases. Juries in the 1850s, uh, and again, I look mostly at the, at the Caribbean coast, so this is going to look different in other parts of Columbia at the time. But Caribbean juries formed a movement that promoted mass exoneration. And within a few short years, convictions for crimes against property and authority dropped by 80%. Jurors recognized defendants as co-citizens whose rights needed to be acknowledged, validated, and protected. And it was up to the jurors themselves to provide this recognition because they had no confidence in the law itself to provide it. And just to emphasize the point, this was all done in the name of fulfilling not only civil equality, but also slave emancipation. Indeed, I found evidence that by 1853, so just a year after slave emancipation, these anti-incarceration activists were calling themselves abolitionists. They attempted to abolish incarceration altogether. The anecdote of popular juries demonstrates how citizens appropriated the universalizing uh, legal equality, the ideal of that, and made it serve other more particularist ends. They put into practice a competing sense of justice, one grounded in the same ideal of emancipation as civil equality, yet given a new valence. 
the juries instantiated and created new forms of mutual recognition between citizens. They acted, in a sense, as the ideological state apparatus hailing the citizenship of the defendants in courts. They extended to defendants their constitutional guarantees and public standing when it appeared that the law had failed to do so. The tension between the universal mode of rights and more particular claims to citizenship was rarely a zero-sum equation. On the contrary, the outcome of struggles between the universal and the particular modes of rights, standing, and belonging created new possibilities as well as pitfalls in the making of everyday citizenship. As I mentioned earlier, there was no telos in this process. These were ongoing struggles, many of which continued to play themselves out uh, long after abolition, uh, taking new forms uh, in Colombia and elsewhere. Uh, and with that, I'll say thank you, and I'll take any questions that you have. <laughs>